This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. In the novel Choose Me, prolific authors Tess Gerritsen and Gary Braver have collaborated on a thriller that introduces Frankie Loomis, a tough-as-nails police detective whose investigation of a college student's fatal plunge from a balcony is so finely layered with suspects that it will keep you guessing until the end if it was a suicide or a murder. Tess and Gary also explain why they enjoyed the collaboration, why it was great to see how each other approached dialogue, both the men's and women's from each other's points of view, and why they chose to make Frankie a woman of a certain age. We also discuss two very important issues specific to authors, when using a pen name works well, and why the laws that protect intellectual property need to be strengthened, especially in circumstances where novels are adapted to movies or television. From what I can tell, your co-authorship on this book is a first for both of you, both as a team and individually. Um, so what came first, the plot of a student murder or the idea to write together? Um, it started at a cocktail party, <laughs> as, as some disasters do. No, it, um, we, I, was, I was thinking about the whole Me Too movement. And, um, and I thought, how do you explore that movement unless you also, you tell everybody's point of view? I mean, to me, point of view is the story. And I'm sure that any, any illicit affair, anything that happens, the, the two different parties um, to this affair are going to have a different point of view. They're going to see it in different ways. Everybody is, his, is the hero of his own story, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what would, what would the man and the woman think? And they're both the heroes of their story. They may look at it in completely the different way, uh, even though it's the same plot. So th that's what I, I was interested in. And I thought, you know, the best person to write the male point of view is a guy. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I knew, I knew Gary and we were there and I was, we were talking about this and sort of like already planning ahead. We knew that it was a murder mystery. And I can't remember whether it was Gary or me who thought, well, maybe it should be a university professor who is the man in this story. And it was a, sort of a natural fit for Gary. Um, and we took it from there. You have a wonderful protagonist in Frankie Loomis. Um, I like the fact that she has a real life. I like the repartee that she had with Mac, her partner. Um, it really filled it out and it, it, they weren't stepping on each other's toes, which I also like that you gave them both distinct personalities. Gary, you'd probably be the best person for me to ask this question. You know, that student professor dynamic, how common is it for those kinds of attractions? And I'm sure if you've seen it in the years that you've been teaching, you've seen it go full circle as to how it is, you know, handled in school, but also handled individually by the individuals. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes. Um, years ago, there was no Title IX. Uh, there was no uh, taboo against the fraternization. Um, and professors dated their students way back, let's say, in the 70s and so into the 80s. Um, and there was one guy who was caught in the sociology department of dating a student, and there was an actual exchange of sex for grades. And uh, he was caught. Uh, it was blatant. Uh, before that, people looked the other way. But this was a, a blatant violation. And then in the 90s, mid-90s, a, a Title IX came down. You have the Department of Education regulations regarding sexual harassment on U.S. campuses. So there are actually laws against this. And, um, and keeping in compliance was that you cannot have an instructor, a professor, 
who has supervisory uh, authority over students such as grades or you know accepting a dissertation thesis um, and have a romantic relationship so it's absolutely verboten now and anything that smacks of it uh, would, could get somebody fired and that is uh, both with males and females um, but things have come down um, very hard uh, on you know, ever since the Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer and uh, you know Charlie Rose incident you know the universities are really being perspicacious about it right um, when I was going through you know looking at the characters I wanted to um, Taryn to me was sort of a heartbreak uh, heartbreaking in so many different ways. Um, here she is, a college student. She's about to graduate. She's her boyfriend is essentially ghosting her, which is horrible. Um, somebody who she's been in love with since high school, and at the same time, you've got all these other people in her lives that are making it just as miserable as as you know as Liam is. So it's it's kind of a a sad situation. I. I was thinking about the mean girl neighbors that she has. And then she has a couple more mean girls in her class because she is, you know, essentially the smartest girl in the room or the smartest student in the room. And yet they don't, they'd rather push her down instead of pull her up or instead of encourage her. Um, I loved Jack Dorian because he was how you feel you would want a professor to be. You want him in your ball court the whole time. I even like the fact that uh, the professor, Jack Dorian, is such a champion for her. And yet all of these people, as the reader is going through the book, could easily be a suspect. So let me ask you specifically, how did your brainstorming sessions work? Did you plot out the book exactly? Are both of you plotters? Are you pantsers? How, you know, to tell me how, how the process worked. Well... I can I can start off with this this explanation in that he wrote a couple chapters and then I wrote a couple of chapters. So no, there was there was really no plotting out ahead of time. And I think it wasn't until maybe midway through that we realized who the killer was. Um, so it was uh, I'm not really a plotter and I'm not sure how Gary writes his stories, but it was well, what happens next? And then we would we would sort of take turns deciding what would happen in the next chapter. So it really was very, um, I guess I would say it was an organic development of a plot. Yeah. Gary, I mean, one of the things, you know, as you know, one of the, the uh, hallmarks of a good mystery is to that the villain is the least suspected candidate in, in the evolving characters. Uh, and we got to a certain point, maybe two thirds through, you know, we were faced with, let's not make this obvious. We really have to, you know, find a villain who is um, least suspected uh, at the same time. Um, you can't pull a rabbit out of the hat at the end uh, and, you know, because that would be just absolutely a taboo. So when any changes we made, and, and Tess and I were going back and forth with this person, about this person, um, every time we made a, a suggestion, it would have to go back like dropping, a, you know, a pebble in a pond, the ripples go out. So when we finally made the decision who it was, you go back and you uh, adjust everything so that the ripples all connect and you're not really, uh, again, you know, uh, uh, putting a fast one on the reader at the end. Right, right. The readers don't like that at all. The readers don't like that. <laughs> there were a lot of character um, develop changes as well. I and mean, for for me, Taryn was a really difficult character because she's so different from me. First of all, she's a college student, and that's I don't know how many decades behind me. But also, she comes from a point of desperation, and um, I think it took me 
quite a few chapters before I really understood the depth of her desperation. Um, and, and I think there's also the, the possibility when you get to her death, did she murder, did, was she murdered or maybe she killed herself? It's not entirely clear. So that, that is like one more suspect to think about. Was it Karen herself who took her life? Right. I also feel that the, um, the reader has the opportunity to play that out in their minds because she, there was a part of her that was so desperate that it almost, that it does come off as suicidal. And that is important too, in the sense that anytime you look at a, a murder and you have that component in it, it changes the whole component. Mm-hmm. And everything from how her mother saw her, her mother's role in her life, you know, no father figure, essentially, all that was beautifully laid out for us to feel empathy for her. At the same time, you know, we all have this person in our lives or who floats through our lives who maybe just a little off. And we're we're kind of like, I like them, but I've got to watch my step around them. And people start kind of backing away from this person. And it's it's a shame. But at the same time, we all have to move on with our lives. And that person isn't. And we know that about that person as adults. Right. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. She's complicated in, in a way that makes you a little afraid of her as well, because yeah. you, you know she's passionate. And, and some people, you know, when you first meet them, they are seductive and they're wonderful and, 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 and they're lovable, but there is a darkness there. And that was what was layered into Taryn. And she's the kind of person who might actually have killed herself to punish him, to, because right. she knew the complications would destroy him. Part of what thematically bounds the book together is, uh, and it both is academic as well as personal. She, she's, men have left her flat. Her father abandoned her when she was a child. Her latest boyfriend abandons her. And, and then she has a difficult relationship with the professor. Um, and she takes the kind of academic point of view uh, that women have been abused by men since um, since Virgil's Aeneid and all the way up to the present. So that, that thematically connects to her and it's something she can connect with and, 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 and internalize. Right. I love I loved all the bits of literature that you chose to represent um, what she was learning in class and how she was internalizing what she was learning and how she flipped it on its head. That was a wonderful um, just bit of, of layering in there that I personally enjoyed. So about your collaboration, what would you say was the the most satisfying factor about it, and what was the least? The most satisfying was uh, two heads are better than one. Um, whenever I got stuck, I could always depend on Tess to you know, help us work something out there, either a plot twist or who done it, or what do you think about developing this aspect of the character? And that was always, always fun. Um, when you're working solo, as you know, Josie, you, um, you sometimes get to a roadblock and you don't quite know what to do. You have you bullets and possibilities, but this was easier and, and that was greatly satisfying. Perfect. I love that. And Tess? Um, I think what I like the best is about I had a man actually write from a man's point of view. I mean, there are times when I when I will write from the male point of view and I think, am I really getting this right? Is that how they think? Uh, because in some ways, they're like different species. Uh, and, and there would be times when I would get chapters back from Gary and I'd say, do you guys really think this way? <laughs> do you really see women that way? Uh, and I, I would check in with my husband and my husband would go, yeah, that's that's right. That's the way that we think. <laughs> so um, in a way, it was 
it was eye-opening it was it was a way of seeing women from another point of view and uh, it was educational right um so who's your favorite character in this book and why it doesn't have to necessarily be your protagonist but if it is your protagonist i thoroughly understand because i so fell in love with her but at the same time i i felt like your characters were so well drawn that i could easily say wow this is a good character so so why don't you start tess um, I like Frankie because I can identify with her. She's a woman of a certain age. She has teenage daughters who are giving her her heart. Um, she's, so she, and she's dealing with multiple things at once, but mainly she's dealing with being a woman in a man's profession. Um, she has earned the, you know, the, the respect of her partner. And that's what I love. They sort of like squabble like an old married couple, but they really care about each other. Um, so when Frankie walks into a situation where she's, you know, questioning a, a suspect, she goes in with a certain advantage. And her advantage is that everybody underestimates her because she is a, she is a woman in her 50s. And everybody looks at the male partner thinking he is the authority in this, pair, in this partnership when she's the one who's, you know, really in charge of everything. So um, that's what I love about her is that I can identify with her. And I think it's unusual for us to see older female detectives in fiction these days. And it's, it's sort of refreshing to see one um, of, of her generation. Right. I agree. And you, Gary? I think it's probably Jack. I mean, I spent most of the time in his head for the two years we wrote this. So I, I've got a feel for him. And I also would, would, would change aspects of myself and, and when I'm projecting something into him. Um, the, the guilt I could only imagine had I had an affair with a student uh, and going home to my wife. Um, I, I understood a professor's attraction to a female. Um, I've been teaching for you know, over 40 years and I've seen uh, thousands of students. And so one could understand that kind of attraction and the, the forbidden nature of it, too. And you just also control yourself. You know, you don't do anything that is untoward or, 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 or you know, are dangerous. Um, also, I, I made him younger than I am because I was back there you know, when I was his age. Um, and he is a successful teacher. Um, and he is very much in, uh, in, uh, enjoys his profession and enjoys being with young people, which is a wonderful thing. You have four years every, you know, you're in within four years of each other. Uh, every year you have a new batch. So finding a very bright student like Karen, someone who is dedicated, someone who wants to grow up and be just like you, is something that's somewhat familiar. And uh, so I felt close to his appreciation for someone like Karen, and I felt close to oh my god moments the cops are after me <laughs> even though i've never lived anything like that so i could identify with his, his spectrum of emotion i could see that too um i tilt this podcast as much toward writers as i do readers i do get readers listening but i it's about authors and speaking to authors and both of you have had you know you've been on the on the stormy seas of writing <laughs> and of publication, and of everything else when you look at, especially when you look at intellectual property. So I've got a question both for Tess and one for Gary. They're different questions. So Tess, I'm going to start with you. Um, you had a wonderful runaway success with Rizzoli and Isles, both in print and in television. At the same time, you had that horrible, horrible experience with Gravity and the slate of hand with the companies owned by the same entity. Um, what do you think worked in the former 
that didn't work in the latter? And is there possibility for that happening in that medium as well? What worked in the former is that the people behind Rizzoli and Isles were very respectful of writers. Um, the man who approached me, was uh, he was the producer, Bill Haber, um, actually the packager. He loves books. He loves writers. And he, he was very generous when um, we had our deal uh, to create the television show. He did things that most producers don't do. So it really is a function of the personalities you're dealing with. You deal with somebody who's who's out to, you know, to screw you. Um, that's what's going to happen. And you work with somebody who says, I can work with you. I want to respect who you are as a creator. Things will, will, will be handled in a completely different way. The problem is when you're swimming in Hollywood, you don't know who the sharks are and you don't know who the dolphins are. Um, and you only find out, unfortunately, painfully after the fact sometimes. So it, it hasn't quelled you thoroughly on on adaptations, I assume. No, um, in fact, we're I'm in negotiations now um, to uh, to write some TV movies um, for for a, a television channel, um, and we just have to assume that you're dealing with honorable people. Um, and in fact, I I think we are. So it's it's not stopping me. I feel that television is an incredibly wonderful storytelling medium. Um, I love writing scripts. I think it's it's a different way of writing, but it's it's a way that gets right to the heart of character and dialogue, and I, and I truly enjoy it. Yeah, and I bet also, as, you know, starting out as a novelist and then kind of segueing over, it's helped you look at it visually in your novel writing as well. Yes, and there's so much, well, what I've also understood, um, and I've, I've come to understand, because I've also been a, a producer of a horror film too, is the importance of casting. Um, you can write the best script in the world and it's miscast and it, you've destroyed it. So so it is such a collaborative process when you go to television or film. You really, every single little piece needs to work well for, for the TV show or for the movie to work. Right. Um, in the same light, um, you know, right now as, as we're speaking, there's the whole issue, hashtag Disney must pay, which is has used similar tactics that to what you just went through, but in regard to royalty payments to science fiction and fantasy writers uh, who have worked for Lucasfilm and worked for Marvel, and which is now owned by Disney, and essentially not paying royalties to the writers who wrote books related to these franchises. Um, how can authors fight against this greed grab? I don't have a good answer for that because obviously I lost my 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 case. Um, I think that it's really wonderful that all these writers' organizations are coming together um, to work on the same issue, which is what happens with mergers and acquisitions, um, what happens to the original contracts, and it, it is it, it is pretty outrageous that you can have your contract be invalidated just because another company has come in and bought your IP. Um, so it's it's maybe we need to get to the Supreme Court. I mean, I just couldn't push it that far. I, I was too intimidated by by the battle. Um, but the same principles apply with Disney must pay. I mean, it's the same thing about company A buys company B, gets company B's goodies, but doesn't get company B's obligations. I mean, that is exactly what happened to me. Um, maybe, maybe with Disney must pay, there will be uh, some kind of a resolution that will be, that will maybe go across the entire entertainment industry. Right. Um, Gary, 
your science thriller writing career began with archaeological thrillers. Mm -hmm. When I told my husband this, he went, great, let's grab his books. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it was under, you know, your real last name, which is Gosh Garian. But later it was changed at your publisher's request when you started writing biomedical thrillers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know... This has always been sort of like a thing that kind of sticks in my cross sometimes is, you know, the writer hasn't changed, but the market has changed. Right. And for vagaries outside of our control, I mean, we don't control when borders went under. We don't control, you know, the pandemic that may take a bunch of indie bookstores under with it, you know, and push everybody toward digital. Okay, so we don't control this stuff. But we still get blamed for this stuff, you right. know, or, or in essence, we have to reinvent ourselves. Um, in hindsight to you, was it worth it? Yes. Um, what, what I had envisioned um, a series of archaeological expeditions, um, and then Indiana Jones came out, <laughs> which really put the kibosh on that. Um, uh, when we had our firstborn child, uh, and we bought our house. Um, we went through the place and removed asbestos and lead paint and radon gas. And I think Kathy was in the backyard with a Geiger counter looking for nuclear waste. And it gave me an idea that, you know, what if something bad were under the swimming pool we had just built in the backyard and canisters of bad stuff were crushed with a heavy footman in? And that led to uh, a book called Rough Beast. And it did very well. I got really nice reviews. And the uh, the publisher came to me and said, what do you have next? And I said, I've got another archaeological thing. He said, no, no. Give us another kind of family-centered horror novel where something bad gets, you know, gets the sex of families. Um, something uh, is developed, a new whatever that promises an advancement for the human race, but it's got a it's got a catch to it. Uh, and that led to the, the next six novels, which all have the caveat, watch out what you wish for, you know, an anti-aging drug, and then how to boost the intelligence of children, and, and on and on and on. So, and I had gotten a multi-book contract, which probably answers your question, Joe. It's always, I was following the directives of my publisher, and I had contracts to write more kind of thrillers with some kind of scientific um, breakthrough or some kind of scientific discovery that goes awry. That sounds wonderful. I'm glad that it worked out in the long run and that and that you said it was worth doing for all those <laughs> authors who have that same dilemma to face them soon. Um, so what are you guys working on next? Are there plans to do more Frankie Loomis books? Uh, are you moving in different directions? Um, Gary, why don't you start and then Tess, why don't you finish? Uh, yeah, uh, I have two other books I'd recently finished, and I'm working on another one. We're just waiting for um, the agent to uh, wait for the right time to uh, find, uh, find the publisher. Um, I have a new Rizzolian Isles book coming out in 2022, probably June, I believe. Um, so that's that's all finished. <laughs> and I'm, as I said, I'm in negotiations to do some screen, screenplays. And I have another book in development called I don't want to give you the title yet, but it's based on something that's a little odd about where I live. I live in a little town up in Maine, and we seem to have an inordinate number of retired CIA up here. I mean, it's like I'm surrounded by former spots. <laughs> and so, so I just thought it'd be fun to, again, I'm, I'm, I'm going the older woman route. 
what is it like to be a retired spy in a little town with a lot of other retired spies and you get called back into business. You don't really want to go, but you're forced to go. And what is it like to um, to have to strap on a gun again when you haven't worn one in 20 years? So that's that's uh, that's the the new idea I have. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Josie. Tess Gerritsen and Gary Braver's Choose Me is in bookstores now. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.